Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with, with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business of it is mine to judge those outside the church? Are, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, would you please give us insight into this text? Give us understanding. Help us to see how it speaks to our lives and how it speaks of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in a family, if one member of the household is engaged in ongoing behavior that's not appropriate or it's harmful in some way, probably the worst thing the other family members can do is fail to confront them. So, for example, let's say someone is struggling with an addiction or someone is exhibiting toxic anger, or let's say there's some kind of abuse in the home, if, if all the other members of the family just look the other way and pretend like nothing is wrong and make excuses for the person and just you know, kind of make adjustments to their own life to accommodate for this misbehavior, it's not gonna go well, right? I mean, first of all, um, the person who's struggling will probably never seek help for their problem. They're just, they'll just never will. And worse than that, the entire family itself will become dysfunctional. You know what I'm talking about? Like every member of that household, without even wanting, will find themselves sort of sucked into the drama of one person's pathology, and, the, and they will become what therapists would call, they will become a dysfunctional home. Now, I bring that up so that we will understand why passages like the one that Ann just read for us find, are, occur in the Bible. We're, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians right now. 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of the early churches. 
And today we come to this passage that, can we just be honest, this sounds pretty harsh, right? Sounds kind of judgmental and unkind. He says, put that man out of your fellowship. I've already passed judgment on him. Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. It sounds so harsh. I can imagine friends of mine, if they were here today and they heard that passage read in our church, you know, they might say, you know, you, you hear that? That's exactly why I don't like Christianity. They're right there. Christian communities are stern and judgmental and restrictive and unkind. You, know, you can imagine that kind of response. But let me just say, before you jump to that conclusion, we should, we should understand what's really going on here. Guys, um, the Bible tells us that when God looks upon us, when he looks upon the church, he sees us as his own family. We are, we are his children, and he loves us. He is our father, and he is a good father. Amen? And so because our good father loves his children, he does not want our life together as, as a church to feel like we're in a dysfunctional family. Does that make sense? So in the, in the church to which this letter was first written, you just heard it, there was a man who was engaged in some very, very inappropriate behavior. He was involved in a, in a relationship, an extramarital relationship, that must have been just devastating. Several families in, in that church and, and the whole congregation. And, and the news of this man's affair, it seems, had traveled all the way from Corinth in Greece, where the church was, and it had spread all the way to Ephesus in Turkey, where the Apostle Paul was. That's a long way for, for the news to spread. So it just kind of gives us the indication this must have been going on for a long time and out in the open in a very brazen way. So it just it gives us some evidence that this man was entirely unrepentant about what he was doing. He didn't care what he was doing, didn't care what people thought, didn't care how many people got hurt by it. And so the apostle writes a letter to that ancient church and he says to them, this man can no longer be part of your church. You must immediately kick him out of your congregation. Now, why, why, is, why was it so important for them to do this? Um, let, let me suggest three main reasons why this was important. And the first, first reason, as I've, I've already alluded to, was just for the health of the church, for the, for the health of the family of God. You see this if you look in the middle of verse 6. Here's what the apostle says, middle of verse 6. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, if, if you may have recognized, especially if you grew up in a Jewish family, that the apostle here was drawing on Passover imagery when the people of Israel were rescued from their slavery in Egypt and God brought them out of that, that bondage. Um, during the Passover, they were told that as they fled from Egypt, one of the things they were told is that they were to pack unleavened bread for their journey. They had to get out of Egypt so quickly, they didn't have time for the bread to rise, so they were to take with them unleavened bread. And in Jewish families, 
This has been going on. It's still happening for thousands of years later. Every year at Passover in Jewish families, one of the ways that families will reenact the Exodus and reenact the Passover is before Passover starts, they'll go through the home and remove every shred of any kind of bread or any kind of baked product that has yeast in it. All of it has to be removed from, from, the, from their home. Every year, because we worship in a synagogue at Passover, we have to go through all of our supplies and remove anything in this building that has yeast or Passover, uh, in it. And then during the Passover, Jewish families will eat only unleavened bread. Well, any baker will tell you that if you want to eat unleavened bread, it won't help you if you merely remove 25% of the yeast, right? Or 50% of the yeast. yeast. Yeast, they tell us, yeast is actually a living organism. That means it multiplies, it grows. So if you're, if you're making bread and there's just a little bit of yeast in the lump of dough, what will happen? It will grow, it will spread. The whole loaf, with even just a little bit, will rise. So this is what the, the, the apostle is saying. He's saying to them, guys, just as in Jewish families at Passover, they remove 100% of the yeast from, the, from their homes. He says, I want you to strive to remove 100% of, of any kind of blatant or intentional or ongoing sin, any kind of unrepentant behavior. Remove it from your church. Now, why does he say this? Because, here's what, here's what he's uh, trying to communicate. Because just like yeast, sin grows. It multiplies. It spreads in its influence, and it affects everyone in the church. Now, you may know this, that when we come to Christ, we are, the Bible says, we are united with Christ and because all of us here are united with Christ, in a certain sense, all of us are united with each other. We're part of, of the family of God, the body of Christ. And, and so because of that, our obedience to Jesus strengthens everyone else in the church. Our disobedience to Jesus weakens and threatens everyone else in the church. I wonder if some of you um, maybe have personal friends who grew up in a Christian family or grew up in the church and then later as, as adults they walked away from the faith. Maybe you know people like that. Very often when you meet someone like this and you ask them, why did you make that decision to walk away from, from your faith? Very often they'll talk about hypocrisy in the church where they grew up. Or, or they'll, they'll talk about racism that they witnessed among Christians. Or they'll, they'll, perhaps they'll talk about abusive patterns of leadership that they saw from their pastors or elders. Or, or, or maybe, maybe they'll just talk about growing up in a church where there was always this background of gossip or unforgiveness. And they'll, and, and they'll talk about how that just discouraged them from following Jesus. That kind of news always breaks your heart. We should, we should understand that none of those things, no, listen, no amount of hypocrisy in the church on judgment day will be seen as a valid excuse for our uh, sin or our unbelief. I can't blame other people for, for my turning my back on Jesus, neither can you, right? But when, when you hear stories like this, you hear stories of people who when they were children, they had such joy in Jesus, and that joy was crushed 
by hypocrisy in the church. Let me ask you, doesn't something inside you just get mad? Don't you feel mad about that? You know, Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 6, he said this. He said, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for that person to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You know, I wonder if, as the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to that church in Corinth and, 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 and was just talking to them about how the influence of that one person's sin could affect the, that the whole congregation, I wonder if he was thinking about some of the children in that church. I wonder if he was thinking about the teenagers. I wonder if he was thinking about how that man's um, disrespectful approach to marriage might be affecting other marriages in the congregation. I, I, I don't know what he was thinking, but I'm sure one of the reasons he told them that they needed to deal with this problem is because it was concerned about the overall health of the church. So that's one reason. He, he, this was important for them. A second reason, he was concerned about the glory of God, God's glory. You'll, you'll notice verse 1 says, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. When Paul says, you know, it's, it's reported, he means, uh, guys, people are talking about this. This, this has gone public. The world knows what's taking place in your church. In fact, it's, it's reported to such an extent that Paul, many hundreds of miles away, had already heard about what was taking place. So he, he's saying, listen, this, this really concerns me that the outside world knows what's taking place in your church. Now, why was he so concerned about this? Well, well because the Bible tells us that Jesus taught, did you know this? Jesus taught that Christians, in a certain sense, Christians represent God to the world. The, the impression that the world gets of who our God is, the world gets that impression to a large degree just by looking at us. Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, talking to his disciples, he said this. Have you heard this before? He said, you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He said, if, if the salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything. And as to the light, he said, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Christ is just saying, the world will get to a large degree its impression of who God is by the flavor of the lives of Christians, by, by whether or not the lives of Christians shine with goodness and integrity to the world. So this, this is the reality. The name of God, the fame of God, the reputation of God, the glory of God. In the eyes of the world, these things are all linked to the lives of believers. There's a Christian author named Sheldon Van Aken who wrote this. I wonder if you would uh, agree with this statement. He said, The best argument for Christianity is Christians their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity, he said, dies a thousand deaths. Now, I, I know, and, and perhaps you've seen this, there's a tendency 
in certain Christian circles for, especially for the pastors to stand up and rail against all the evil that's out there in our society. You know, just say, we have to, we have to fight against this stuff. We have to fight against the atheists and fight against the secular humanists and we have to fight against the LGBTs and we have to fight against the corrupt entertainment industry. Just that, that's the message in, in our current environment of culture wars. That, that's the church we have to fight to preserve a Christian culture in our land. No, we don't. No, we don't. Where, where did the Bible ever say that? Nowhere. Here's what the apostle wrote to them. He, verse 9, he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people in this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. He said, in that case, you'd have, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, anyone who professes to be a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Verse 12, he says this, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And then he says, Expel the wicked person from among you. So, guys, the job of the church is not to win the culture war, right? The, 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 the job of the church, the job of the church is not to fight against ungodliness in society. What is the job of the church? Our job is to walk in holiness, to live, to live lives for the glory of God, to, just to live passionately and consistently and lovingly and joyfully and obediently as the redeemed people of God. In fact, the Bible would suggest we want to have an impact on the world. That's how we have an impact on the world, by living for the glory of God. First, first Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Peter wrote this. He said, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This week I was reading of some extensive research that was done, and according to this, this one study, they found that 84% of young non-Christians in America, 84% of young non-Christians say that they personally know someone who is a Christian. That's good news. But they also found that among those who personally know a Christian, only 15% said that that Christian's life is noticeably different in a positive way from the life of anyone else in the world. They don't see any, doesn't that break your heart? They don't see any difference. So guys, listen, it, when, when, uh, when the world looks at the church and they see that we don't love and serve the poor more than, more than anyone else does, that, that we're just as materialistic as the rest of society, that, that we don't really love each other any more than you know, the members of a local softball team love each other, they look at us and, and they see that we respond to problems in our life with the same degree of panic and anxiety as anyone else. When they don't see any difference in us, what happens? The glory of God, in a certain sense, is degraded in the eyes of the world. 
You know, I wonder if uh, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in America, would say the same thing to us that he said to those ancient Corinthians. Chapter 2, here's what he said to them. He said, you're proud? You guys are proud? He said, you should have gone into mourning. I, I wonder if during this season of Lent there's an appropriate way for us as a church just to be kind of mourning and saying, oh, God, we... We, we want to be the kind of community where, where we are encouraging each other to, to live the kind of lives that when people look at ACC, they say to themselves, there must be a glorious God that these people know. Amen? So why was he so concerned? Remove this man from the church. First, he, he was just concerned about the health of the congregation. Secondly, he was concerned about the glory of God. And then thirdly, let's not miss this. He was concerned about the well-being of the man who was sinning. He was concerned about that man. Now, let's be clear. What this man was doing was, uh, was inexcusable. We don't know the lurid details, and thank God for that, but it's, an, it's enough for us to know that it, it, in some way this man was having an affair with his own stepmother. The Apostle Paul writes to them, and, and he says, you know, this, this kind of immorality, even the pagans wouldn't tolerate this. They, they, they lived in a city that had a reputation. The, the city of Corinth had a reputation for, it was one of those towns where anything goes, and, and sexual immorality was encouraged. And he says, guys, even your neighbors who don't know Jesus wouldn't put up with this. So here's what he told them to do, verse 4 and 5. He says, when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Doesn't that make you tremble? It gives me goosebumps. What does he mean? Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Well, did, did you notice that Paul seems to be using that phrase, hand him over to Satan, he's using that phrase as a synonym for a phrase that he uses in verse 2, which is, put him out of your fellowship. So he, he basically means the same thing. Put him out of your fellowship is the same thing as hand him over to Satan. Now, wh why would he say that? Well, when this man was a member of that church, he lived under the spiritual protection that comes to those who are part of the covenant people of God. There's kind of a, uh, this sounds mysterious, but there's a kind of umbrella of spiritual protection for those who join a church. They're, they, they are prayed for by their brothers and sisters. They, they regularly hear the preaching of the gospel. They live as members of a community in which the Holy Spirit lives and moves. There's a kind of spiritual protection for those who are part of the church. And Paul is saying, I want you to remove that man from out of that spiritual protection. And when he's removed from that church, Paul says, basically he's saying, the devil is going to have a field day with that guy. I mean, he, he will be a sitting duck. He will be an easy target for, listen, for all kinds of attacks, all kinds of attacks from the evil one. And when this man is attacked by the evil one, he will suffer. So to follow the line of Paul's logic, he's saying this, remove that man from your church so that... He will suffer. And we all say, I knew Paul was a meanie, right? I knew it. 
You see the, how vindictive he is? You see how vengeful? He wants this man to suffer. But did you notice why he wants him to suffer? He says, remove him from your congregation. Remove him from under the umbrella of spiritual care. Pain and sorrow will come into his life. And here's why I want that to happen. He says at, at, the, uh, at the end of verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. He's, he's, he's saying, I, I want this man to be saved. I, I don't know if any of you have experience in the recovery movement or if you have friends that have been involved in 12-step in groups. Very often in the, in the whole world of recovery from addiction, very often people will say this, and it's often true. They'll say that you never really recognize that you have a problem and you never really seek for help until what? Until you hit bottom. Often that's the case for people. They don't seek help until they hit bottom. So I, I wonder if Paul were writing using today's uh, terminology, he might write to that church and just say, guys, you need to let this man hit bottom. Stop enabling him. Stop making excuses for him. Stop covering for him. You, 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 you just need to let him hit bottom because until he hits bottom, Listen, he will never turn to the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying. I love this guy. I, I want him to come to his senses. I want him to repent. I want him to come back to Jesus. I, I want him to be saved. Forgiven and saved. I wonder if anyone in the church in Corinth who heard this thought to themselves, Are you kidding? This guy saved? Paul, do you know what he's been doing? I mean, can we just say it? His, his behavior is nasty. His, his behavior is disgusting. I mean, he's been doing some stuff. We don't even want to talk about it on a Sunday when the children are with us, right? Can a guy like that be forgiven? Let, let me ask you, ACC. Can someone who's committed a very shameful sin that has brought pain to others can a person like that be forgiven? Oh, you don't sound very certain. Can a person who has fallen into sin that brought heartbreak to them, brought dishonor to God, brought great pain to others, can a person like that be forgiven? Yes. Absolutely. Aren't you glad that that's clear for us? Aren't you glad that we don't have to wonder about that? I mean, the Bible tells us with crystal clarity. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 5? It says, if anyone, you know what anyone means? It just means anyone, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, no matter whom they've slept with, even if they made a pact with the devil himself, if anyone is in Christ, it says he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. Look for it, you won't find it. The old is gone. The new has come. Isn't that, isn't that good news? It makes me happy. It's, it says in, in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as God is in the light, you know what that means? That means no matter how dark your, your life is right now, if you would just come back to God, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, it says we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. All sin. 
is such good news. And Paul wrote to that church in the Corinth with, with the confidence that if they would just love this man enough to confront him over his sin, God might work in his life in such a way that he would return to Jesus. And if he returned to Jesus, this guy would be restored. He knew that could happen. Now, when you read on in the Bible, you know, you have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians was a, a subsequent letter that the apostle wrote to that very same church. And when you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the apostle talks about someone in that congregation who had fallen into very shameful sin. That person had been disciplined by the congregation, and that person had responded to the discipline by repenting and coming back to the Lord. Now, he never identifies the person. We don't know who it was. But many people wonder, was it that same man? Was it this guy? Who, who, had, who had brought shame to the, to the whole church. Was it him coming back to Jesus? Here's what Paul said to, to do in 2 Corinthians 2 with that person who was returning to the Lord. He wrote to the church and he said, Restore him. Restore him. Bring him back in. Give him a hug. Tell him he's forgiven. Restore him. Tell him to head, hold his head high, to walk among you with no shame. He's been restored to the family of God. And as I said, many have wondered, was it the same man? If it was, believer, you know what that means? This guy in 2 Corinthians 5, someday you might meet him in heaven. Isn't that something to think of? You meet some guy in, in the new kingdom that is to come, and you're talking with him, and you, hey, can you tell me your story? And as he begins to talk, you say, wait, wait. That sounds very familiar. Wait a minute. Are you the guy from, second, from, from 1 Corinthians 5? And he said, yeah, that's me. And you say, you're here in heaven? And he said, yeah, it's me. And you say, can you please tell me, what is it that God used to bring you from that dark, dark place back into the light of his son? What did God use to do that? And he'll say, he used my church. He used my brothers and sisters. They weren't the biggest church. They weren't the best church. They weren't the flashiest church. But I'll tell you what, they were a healthy congregation. They, they, they just were a group of people who loved the glory of God more than they did you know, the decorum of their congregation. They had a passion for God's glory among them. And, and, and you know what he'll say? And not only that, they really loved me. They love me enough not to put up with my shenanigans, right? They love me enough to, to tell me when I needed to come home. And because they loved me that way, I've been saved. Now, guys, I, I'm not sure exactly how we apply this passage to our church. We're not planning to kick anyone out today. Don't worry about that. But I do think a passage like this, this was written to another church in a different place, but it's, it's in Scripture for all churches in every age. I think it would be telling us several things. First of all, we should be a people who encourage each other with all our hearts to live for the glory of God. Do we do that? Well, let's just be a church where we kind of, let's raise the bar of expectation among ourselves. When we say, when, when people think about ACC, they will think about people who joyfully, passionately 
want to live lives that bring glory to Jesus. Amen? Let's also be a church where we love each other enough that when we ever see a brother or sister straying, we don't just let them drift. We love them enough, you know, in an appropriate way to kind of grab them by the collar and pull them back home and say, you're my sister, you're my brother. I can't let you slide into that. Jesus loves you. Come back and follow him. And then one more thing for us. I think we're already doing this, but let's do it more and more. Let's be a church where we really believe in and rejoice in this message of grace. Let's be the kind of church where if anyone ever walks in these doors, no matter how dark their their past or their history, we're able to say to them, listen, with full-throated confidence, when you come in here and you come to Jesus, you are forgiven. Amen? And let's rejoice that that's the kind of message that for those who know Christ, that's the kind of message that is always true. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for letting us read a portion of this letter to an ancient church. May it speak to us. May it call us to live for your glory. May it call us to to rejoice in your grace and in your love. And may it cause our hearts to sing with gratitude to you. In Jesus' name, amen.